so I'm so excited that my friend Mike Allen uh, is with us. Uh, Mike is the academic dean and the John Tyre Trimble uh, Professor of Systematic Theology at RTS Orlando. Um, he is a prolific author. I think like today on social media, he put out like three or four books that have just come out or are coming out, um, but is, um, has taught at RTS for a number of years prior to that. And I think actually the first time I met Mike, he was teaching at Knox Theological Seminary where he was the D. James Kennedy Professor of Systematic Historical Theology. Uh, and, uh, but the, one of the things that I was excited about having Mike come, uh, one of the reasons was he has Memphis Connections. Um, he actually uh, spent some time growing up here in Memphis. His, his dad is a pastor uh, who served over at Second Presbyterian Church, and he actually had Robert Browning as his youth pastor. Um, so, uh, so after he's done, come up, hit him up for great stories or any dirt you need to use up for Robert. I'm sure he'll be ready to supply it. Uh, but we are so thankful that you were willing to come and spend some time with us, Mike. Welcome, come. Well, hey, it's a privilege to be with you and to be here for the first of these four Wednesdays. Uh, Sean had told me, gosh, almost a year ago that you were going to be spending this time thinking about knowing God. And of course, it's the most central of things that we ought to care about, but oftentimes it gets crowded out by other things. We think about how we ought to get along together in our families, how we ought to get along together as a church, how we ought to get along with our wider culture and engage all those things, and it's very easy to crowd out considering the one who's at the center of all things, the one who gives us life, the one in whom we find our happiness and our salvation. And so knowing God more fully and beholding his beauty and understanding how we find our true joy and satisfaction in him is a worthy, the worthiest of callings, but it's also pretty hard. And so I hope that over these next four Wednesdays, you were helped and prompted. And as Sean prayed, that the time that we spend would lead you more fully into the Word, um, but it would also open up and alert you to things uh, going on around you in the everyday. And I hope we'll see both of those this evening. My task is to talk about knowing the triune God, some of you perhaps will know the line from Dorothy Sayers. She said, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing incomprehensible. Something made up by theologians just to baffle us. And uh, I think she was right almost all the way to the very end. That the Father is incomprehensible. The Son is incomprehensible. Our, our heads do hurt when we ponder the glory and greatness of God. That's true, and we ought not be ashamed of that. We actually need to think about that. We need to linger over that. But it's not simply something that's there to be an abstract problem. It's there to lead us to worship. It's there to lead us to humility. It's there to prompt us to greater dependence. And it's there to draw us back into God's Word. And so I hope tonight as we think just briefly about some of the basic elements of what it means to know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God of the gospel revealed in Holy Scripture, that that wonder and that mysterious joy would well up a bit more in each of us. To help us along the way, I wanted to turn to a brief essay by a favorite author of mine. Perhaps some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. 
And uh, along with writing wonderful Chronicles of Narnia and uh, other great fiction, he was an essayist and he was a, a literary scholar. And one of my favorite essays that Lewis wrote was called Meditations in a Tool Shed. Perhaps somebody in the room's heard of it, but he talks about wandering out into a thick wood and in the midst of this wood with the foliage over top of it, there is a tool shed. And he describes going up and opening the door and, and from the door seeing in this very dark room. Can't make out anything. There's probably storage. There may be shelves, but it's dark as can be, except for a beam of light shining down from a skylight. And from up above, in one little crack through the foliage, the tree canopy above, a beam of light has shone down, and it shines through that skylight, and he can see it, and it's brilliant, and it's overwhelming, and it is startling in contrast to the darkness of the shed. And he talks about how it just struck him and caused him to pause and wonder at the power of that light. But then he describes he walks into the tool shed, and he walks all the way to where that shining beam of light hits, and everything changes. He can't make out the beam of light anymore, but because he stands in the beam of light, he can see everything all around him. He can see a shelf here. He can see storage over there. He can make out the door from which he's just come. Standing in that light opens up his perception of other things in a way that wasn't possible before. And Lewis talks about how there's two different ways of knowing things represented by those two moments there. You can look at something, you can peer at it, you can fix your attention on it, you can behold it, you can contemplate it, you can try and take in its specificity as it is, or you can look along something. You can use it as a means of making sense of other things, of casting light onto the darkness of other things that apart from it wouldn't make any sense, wouldn't exist as they are. This evening, what I'd like to do in just a couple brief segments here is to consider what it means to look at the triune God, to behold him, to understand what's involved, what it's like to get to know this glorious God as he reveals himself. And then secondly, what does it mean to look along the triune God? How does understanding his triunity, who he really is as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, how does that shed light on our lived experience? How is it that there are things that you may have done this very day, this very hour, that you would be ignorant of or that would be imperceptible to you if you didn't look along the character of God and see more of what's going on? Uh, we're going to work through each of those, and basically halfway through, I'm going to pause. So if if I'm not making perfect sense, which my seven-year-old would say happens from time to time, feel free to jot down a question because after about 20 minutes, I'm going to pause as we've talked about what it means to look at the glory of the triune God, and I'd love to hear questions or comments for a few minutes. And then we're going to talk more about looking along the triune God and how that opens up perceiving more of our lives today. And again, we'll have time for questions there at the end, okay? So first, looking at the glory of the triune God, I want to use a, a single text. If you've got a Bible in front of you, 
uh, or a phone that you can pull out a scripture app on, I'd encourage you to open it up to Exodus 3. In each of our segments, we'll just linger over one passage. Exodus 3 is perhaps the first great revelation of who God is. God's been doing lots of stuff, but this is where you start to get remarkable clarity about the God who's been doing all these many things. Uh, Let me just catch you up quickly on the story thus far. Exodus 1 and 2 describe a situation where these Hebrew slaves are in a situation where the Pharaoh doesn't remember a previous Pharaoh's care for the Israelite slaves. And so he works them hard. He's oppressive. He's exploitative. And they are suffering greatly. And at the end of chapter 2, they cry out to God. And God hears their cry. He sees their plight. He comes down and he remembers his covenant that he'd made long ago to Father Abraham. And so Exodus 3 is the first work of God's deliverance of his provision for his people. And as we read in Exodus 3, it begins with Moses out there in the wilderness. He has fled because he killed an Egyptian, protecting one of his own. And he's found this new life out there, and he's tending the flock, as it were. And he comes across what's described here early in the chapter as a bush that's burning but is not consumed. And He is struck. He is awestruck by this, the glory of it. And God calls him forward, and Moses is told that he's to take off his sandals for its holy ground. And things go even more sideways when God tells him that Moses is going to be sent by God back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh from whose house he came, and he's going to go tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, that they may serve him on his mountain for three days, to worship him. Now, you can probably imagine, as I certainly can, this would be perhaps not the most appealing commission, right? Moses left that house. He lived there and was raised there. He was found to be a fraud, a Hebrew child, raised in an Egyptian house, and he killed an Egyptian slave master. He's not likely to be received well. And so the thought of going back is, is one that leads reservations to arise. And Exodus 3 and 4 are this conversation where Moses, Monday morning quarterbacks God. He offers a number of different objections. And I want to focus with you on just one of them here in the middle of chapter 3. Moses asks a question, and God in responding in his patience and his forbearance, he doesn't just answer the question, but he gives so much more. He reveals something profound about himself. So, in Exodus 3, chapter chapter 3, verse 13, we read this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now let's pause. Notice, he's not saying, If I go to Pharaoh... And Pharaoh asks, what is his name? What will I say? It's now if I go to the Israelites. Right now, what's going on here? Moses has been out in the sun for a while. Right? Um, His people are going to be pretty hesitant to allow him from tending the sheep to rush back into civilization 
and to demand that they be freed. Why? Because it's unlikely to be successful, and it's far more likely that Pharaoh will dish out further oppressive demands on them, right? It's in their best interest not to let an imbecile run back in and provoke the mightiest man in all the world. What Moses is really asking here is not just what's his name, but how can I prove that I haven't been out in the sun too long? How can I prove this isn't just a crazed idea? How can I prove God is really calling me to do this? He's asking for a name that confirms his call and God's demand that they be freed. And God answers. Verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Could be translated in different ways. Could be past tense. I have been who I have been. It could be future tense. I will be who I will be. And Jews and Christian scholars have debated this for centuries. The language is ambiguous. So most of us punt, we go with the present because it's in the middle. I am who I am. What's fascinating to catch is that whether it's past tense or future tense or present tense as here, it is self-referential. So for instance, Sean introduced me a few minutes ago, and he did what most of us do when we try and identify and get to know someone. Oh, you're so-and-so. You lived in that city in those years. Oh, she's her sister, or she's his, uh, you know, she's his relative, or he's a coworker of that other person. When we introduce ourselves to people, we make relative connections. I tell you that you know my younger brother, and I'm a slightly older, slightly taller, slightly grayer brother of his. Right? Uh, when I'm introduced to a, a teacher, she tells me that she taught my sister, and suddenly there's a connection. I know how to organize that fact. This is how we get to know each and every person in our interactions. We speak of connecting them to others whom we already have awareness to. Notice what God says. I am who I am. God doesn't say, I'm Pharaoh's greater foe. He doesn't say, I am Ra's truly triumphant opponent. He doesn't say, I'm Molech's biggest fear. He's not comparing himself to the gods of the nations. He's not comparing him to the people who are addressing him. He's not saying, I am the one who created you. He simply says, I am who I am. It led Augustine of Hippo 1,500 years ago to say, this is a name of mystery. Because strictly speaking, it tells us God is in a class by himself. God is not just a, a kinder version of my grandmother. God is not just a stronger version of the mightiest character you know. God is not just a wiser version of the most knowledgeable person you could think of. God is in a class by himself. As we put it, God is transcendent. God is greater and dissimilar to anyone and anything we experience here. He is holy, holy, holy. He is other and distinct and characterized by being above and beyond. God is, strictly speaking, only able to be identified by reference to himself. Now, 
Augustine says that's a name of mystery because that kind of leaves you quiet, right? It puts you in your place. God is I am who I am. And if you imagine somebody saying that to you at a, a coffee shop or a cocktail party, you would be somewhat stunned if that was their response. If I said I'm Mike and someone said I am who I am, I wouldn't quite know what to make of it, right? And, and this is the point that God is introducing and naming himself in a way that shows that he's not like a roommate or a buddy. He's not like a neighbor or a boss. He's not like a politician or a guru. He is in a class all unto himself. But that's not all he says. Augustine points out he keeps talking. And he gives a second name. What Augustine calls a name of mercy. So we read on. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. How different is that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are people in children's Sunday school songs to us or in ancient religious history books. But to these people, they're in the legends of the family. This is God saying, you know, your great, 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 great granddaddy, I was God to him. You know, your great, 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 great granddaddy, I was God to him too. God is saying he's... He's known, he's revealed, he's been present, he's been active in the stories of these men and women who've lived before them, who they know. God's in a class by himself, he's transcendent, but that doesn't mean he's inaccessible. That doesn't mean he's distant, doesn't mean he's disinterested. He is present and revealed, he is available and accessible. We can know him because he has pursued us. He is revealed in the history of these patriarchs. He is displayed in the stories of Israel. He is present in everyday time and space. And so Augustine says that's a great great name of remarkable mercy. That that transcendent, almighty, holy God would be revealed in the stories of your grandpa. Or of a family patriarch. Or of those whose lore and legend is told through the ages in the family tree of Israel. What do we make of this? As we begin to think about what it means for God to be Trinity, we need to think about the fact that God is not like any other character we get to know. We have to know God. We have to know God because we need God like we need no one else. We need a father and a mother. We need friends. We need the body of Christ. There are all sorts of people we need in all sorts of profound and real ways. And you know that. And the disappointment and hurt that some of us experience in different ways is only a a sign of that. But we need God in a much more profound way because we need God as Redeemer. We need God to pull us out of those disappointments and worse, our sin. That's not just circumstantial out there, but is indwelling in here. Who's going to deliver us? It's got to be someone who is 
different from us. It's got to be someone who is not sharing our plight. It's got to be someone who isn't bound to the same limitations. It's got to be someone who comes with a power and capacity and knowledge and an ability that surpasses our own or anyone we might know. And that's just the trick. If we really believe that the triune God is a God who can rescue sinners like you and me and men and women and boys and girls around this world, now and through the ages, then that means, friends, that knowing this God is going to be challenging. Let me explain what I mean by that, and let me say why that's good news, not bad news. There are lots of different academic disciplines out there, because there are lots of different things we might want to know. So you can study economics. My college roommate's an economics prof. You can study psychology, the way in which the psyche works. You can study physics, the way in which motion and other such natural laws occur. If you look at each of those different examples, they work comparatively. They work comparatively. You look not just at a singular anecdote, but you want to compare it to something else. A lawyer, for instance, wants not just to look at a crisis, but to find case law, precedent, that informs and contextualizes and locates and helps clarify how we should deal with it and make sense of it. Right? Uh, a psychologist wants to not just look at what somebody's saying in a clinical counseling room, but to try and categorize it based on ways in which we see over time men and women interacting and displaying good and bad psychological health or disorder. Right? Um, God, by definition, can't be compared. I am who I am. God, by definition, is one of a kind. That means, compared to the economist, and compared to the psychologist, and compared to the physicist, and compared to the legal scholar, any of you who want to grow as a theologian are going to face this challenge, that you are dealing with a one-of-a-kind being, a singular being. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we are told in Deuteronomy 6.4. He's singular, he's unique, he's alone in his glory and goodness and beauty and grace. And that means you can't compare him to the best person you know, to the wisest person you know, the most powerful character you could imagine. And that humbles us, that limits us. That leads us, I think, if we're honest, to to have to say that we are dependent on God to reveal himself. We are dependent on God to come and show himself to us. And we might think, as Dorothy Sayers said, that the incomprehensibility of it is a really bad type of news. This means we're going nowhere. But let me suggest this is the best news in the world. Because you know lots of gurus, I suspect. I've been to Barnes & Noble. I imagine you have too. You can go through guru aisle after guru aisle of self-help projects. I know politicians, and I imagine you do too. Of this platform and that plan, I know folks who are ready to help with diet and health and get your body under control and, and help you experience your best life now. 
I am with my wife raising two little kids, and we have ventured into that territory of child-rearing books. And man, there are a lot of them. They're out there, and they're good and bad ones, and they they seek to, to show you the way in which to raise your kid in a healthy and effective way. But don't we know in all those areas that we need something greater? My kids need me to not just read another book, right? They need God. And our land needs not just a better politician. We need God. And our bodies need not just another diet or another medicine. We need God's resurrection. Right? Uh, we need help that won't be found by just the latest, snazziest, shiniest version of what's around and available in all sorts of ways. We don't need a better cultural commentator. We don't need a better politician. We don't need a better marriage counselor. We don't need a better diet program. Those may all be good things, but our ultimate need is for someone who is not bound by our limits, for someone who does not share our shame, for someone who is not struggling with our sin, for someone who is not distorted by the death that we bear. We need someone who is completely different, who can enter into the fray, who can win and fight and battle and bear the sorrow and rise triumphant from the grave. And that means we need someone who is totally different from anyone you've ever met. And that means that person is going to be kind of hard to understand. That's going to be a person who is above and beyond. That's going to be a person who is higher and holier. That's going to be a person who is transcendent and glorious. And so what we see again and again and again, when people have the most glorious moments of perceiving God, of knowing God, it's amazing what imagery is used. Moses, later in Exodus, is going to have his highest moment of perceiving God. Amazingly, this is not the best. It comes later in Exodus 34. He wants to see God's face. And God says, you can't do that, but you can see my backside. And when it's described as Moses being around the edge of a rock and God's backside passing by, nothing visual occurs. He just hears the name of the Lord proclaimed amid pyrotechnics and smoke and lightning and the like. It's, it's overwhelming. It's otherworldly. It's miraculous. When Paul describes his highest moments of awareness of God, Paul, who's a talker, finds himself he doesn't have words. He comes short. When Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration, and these guys who have been basically to college with Jesus for several years at this point, uh, when they are there in the, the most remarkable of moments of revelation, what happens but they hit the deck? The glorious vision, the powerful voice, the overwhelming presence is too much. Not too much because it's bad. Too much because it is challenging. It is unnerving. It is remarkable. And so, sisters and brothers, the first thing we need to know is we, we consider what it means to know God. Whether it's the triunity of God or the covenant promises of God or the holiness and love or the justice of God is that God is different from us. And isn't that good news? But God is different from us. And that leads to humility. 
And that has to lead us to prayerful dependence. Because we can't get to know God in the way we get to know each other. I can kind of control how I get to know my next door neighbor. I keep showing up at the fence asking questions. Or I keep taking over cookies when they move in and, and trying to get to know them. I keep calling up or shooting them a text. We know how to get to know other people. We've done it before. When it comes to God, we live by faith and we live at his grace. We are dependent on him showing up and making himself apparent in all sorts of ways. In his transcendent glory coming in overwhelmingly good ways. And so the first thing that has always struck Christians from back in Augustine's day and today's in recent years has been that the more we come to know God, the more we will invariably be like Isaiah, who is overwhelmed by that vision in Isaiah 6 of the holiness of the Lord that seems to undo him. The fact that this is a serious matter. Coming to know God isn't just an intellectual abstract task. It's a spiritual journey. It's a pilgrimage. It's a, a way and a walk that's meant to be pursued, not just in an, a cranial way, not just in an intellectual way, but in a, a humble, open-handed way. That we ask how God would want to enlarge, how God would want to challenge, how God would want to reframe our understanding of what it means for Him to be just, of what it would mean for Him to be loving, of what it would mean for Him to be holy, because if we're honest, we bring baggage. We bring assumptions. John Calvin would say, our hearts are idol-making factories. We don't have to mean to do that. We just do that. We bring our expectation and our prejudice. We bring our assumptions and our, our, our prior experience. And so, knowing the triune God is about being undone when God shows up. And Learning to lean into that, not to be fearful of that. Learning to realize that that's the great goodness of the gospel. That it does lead to death, but on the other side of death is resurrection. It does lead to the death of false ideas of power or of justice or of love or of blessing. But on the other side of it are true and good and beautiful visions of those and all other things God wants for us. And that the only way we learn that is by being with God and his transforming presence. Well, let me pause there. It's perhaps a strange way to start talking about the Trinity. So I want to take a couple minutes, and if anybody's got a question or two, Sean's got a microphone and is a speedy character, and he'd love to, to get it to you before we turn to another passage. Yeah. So patience isn't my virtue, but hearing what you're saying that uh, we are waiting for him to reveal himself to mm -hmm. us, how do we find, how do we not lose hope that he will reveal himself to us? Right. Because sometimes I think there are many others who have had maybe uh, 
deeper connections mm -hmm. than I've had, and that leads me to feel like maybe I'm not praying properly or doing something right. And uh, I hear what you're saying, and and it sounds lovely, but mm -hmm. how do you deal with the in-between? That's a great question. And I think you're right that our response can easily be to assume that in some way we're not fit for it or we're cursed as to never have it. Um, and I, I think we ought to acknowledge that God's word is there and God, his word doesn't return void. That doesn't mean, though, that I am guaranteed in every sitting to perceive everything that's to be perceived of God because I am there engaged and I bring my sinfulness, my impatience, my uh, desire for what I, I care about. And so uh, a posture of repentance is necessary. And yeah, that can be, I think, frustrating. And even in some darker seasons, that can lead some, perhaps who are more prone to it, and others in, in certain times who fall into a, a season of despair. Uh, and that's where I think there'd be a whole range of responses we'd want to have. Uh, one would be to look at the fact that the characters I just described go through those kind of seasons, whether it's Moses or dear old Peter there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they both have seasons where it's not all just onward and upward with experiencing the glory of God and knowing nothing but the beauty of his face. Uh, each of them also has darkness, and uh, darkness is sometimes just circumstantial hard times that are challenging. Sometimes it's because of their particular sins, but not always, often not. Um, and it's, it's a means that God uses to grow them over the long haul. And so I, I think looking at those scriptural examples and similar examples throughout history and even closer to us of folks who would describe that kind of wrestling, that kind of yearning, uh, as being a way in which God grows them, not maybe as fast as they might wish, but perhaps to a, a greater kind of enjoyment and satisfaction and knowledge of him uh, than they knew that they were meant for. I, I'm reminded there's a great prayer of Anselm of Canterbury, medieval thinker, and he says, uh, Help me, O Lord, to know you that I may love you and love you that I might rejoice in your name and if I don't rejoice in you as I should now, may I at least increase regularly until that final fullness of joy. I think that's a person who realizes that he needs to not take himself so seriously, even though God is going to be the serious object of his joy. And that's, that's, that's a balancing act, I'm sure, for all of us. Yeah. Any other questions before we move on to a, a second passage in a different element of this? All right, seeing none, let's jump to the New Testament. So if looking at or contemplating the triune God is about looking at a transcendent one who explodes our expectations, how does this relate to ordinary life? And uh, I want to look at the book of Romans. And there are different sections in Romans we could look at. And I'm not going to go to all of these at all. 
But just so you know, you could go to Romans 1 where it talks about the resurrection of Christ and the Father and the Spirit are mentioned there. You could go to Romans 3 where it talks about the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus and the Son and the Father are directly related there and shortly thereafter the Spirit's brought into it. You could go to the end of Romans 11 where it talks about God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things who receives all glory. And it doesn't overtly use the words Father, Son, and Spirit, but it, it seems to be gesturing in that direction. I want to turn to a passage that hopefully describes your everyday experience and maybe helps you see something in that experience that you wouldn't immediately be aware of. Uh, ways in which God is more present than you would expect. God is more involved than you'd be alert to. And that's Romans 8, where Paul talks about the experience of Christian prayer. And uh, there's so much more here that we could explore in this passage, and I hope you study it and pray over it further. But I want to just linger over a handful of verses briefly so you can see how Father, Son, and Spirit, they help make sense of your Christian experience. Not just high moments, but even the way in which you experience seemingly low moments. So I'm going to begin in verse 11 and read through verse 17. Verse 11, 811. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, the body, sorry, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There's more on this later in the passage, a paragraph down. But for the sake of time, we'll stop there. So, two things we want to highlight here. First, verse 11 talks about Jesus' life. And it's brief. He doesn't go on and on and on. But notice what verse 11 says about Jesus' life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, from the de- Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, it's starting to connect to you and to me, right? But let's first catch what it says about Jesus. It talks about Jesus died, and it talks about Jesus was raised. And notice how it describes that. Uh, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. It's talking about the Father. The Father who has resurrected Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal death-ridden body. Christ, of course, is referred to here as the one who is 
died and has risen. That much is plain and obvious. But notice third, the Spirit is also talked about here. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus, if the Spirit of the Father, if He dwells in you, then the Father who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit uniquely works on behalf of the Father, dwelling in and giving life and sustenance and strength and energy to the risen Christ and to His people. Notice there in verse 11, it seems to say, that in the very life of the incarnate Son, the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are working. The Father has a great plan to resurrect the innocent Son as He's been condemned on false charges, as He's borne others' griefs and sufferings. But the Father doesn't work alone. The Son has come and He has died awaiting that resurrection. We, we hear elsewhere in Hebrews 12 too, That we're to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He's, He's committed to that same cause as is the Father. He shares that same will of wanting to die and then to experience the joy of resurrection. And we see here, third, the Spirit is the Spirit of him, the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. And just as much as he's given to empower Jesus, so he has given to empower us. Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. Jesus bears the Spirit. Jesus is filled with the Spirit. And amazingly, the Acts of the Apostles tell us the very same things of his followers. That the Spirit dwells in us. That the Spirit rests upon us. Not to do the same things. You're not called to redeem the world from their sins. And you're never promised that you're going to be perfect in this life, as was the Son. But you do have the same Spirit of His and our Father on you, right? Verse 11 helps us see that the whole Trinity is involved in the work of the gospel story. But notice from there, it's going to now talk about your life. So think about the last time you prayed. It may have been just before you ate this evening. It It may have been this morning, it may be a moment of crisis at some point today or yesterday, perhaps it's longer if you're honest, Um, and it didn't seem to go so well or lead to results that you might have liked, and so you've sort of let the practice slip a little. Think vividly about the last time you prayed, because what's described here is the experience of Christian prayer, some things that... I think we could say may not be existentially immediate. You don't necessarily feel all these things, but notice what Paul wants you to know is really going on. John Calvin would say that Scripture is like a pair of spectacles so that you can look rightly at the world and at yourself. The assumption is you don't understand yourself. Your spouse agrees with me at this moment if you have one. And Calvin says that's true of all of us. We need mirrors, and we need clear mirrors so that we will understand what's really going on in ourselves as well as in the wider world. So this is going to help clarify what is going on when you pray, when you sit at your bedside, when you're in your car saying a prayer, uh, when you're at a, a table, 
Not necessarily when you're in a beautiful sanctuary, though that's true. Not necessarily when you're in a formal gathered setting and people use pious language and are very intentional about it. Just in the most mundane of prayers. The most feeble of prayers. The most sometimes distressing of prayers where we don't know what to ask or we don't know if it's really going to lead to anything. He says this. I'll pick up in... a. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A few quick observations. We could say so much more, and maybe you'll ask for more. Uh, First, the Father. What does it say of the Father here? Well, we see in verse 15 that we have been adopted as sons of the Father, and we cry out to him, Abba, Father. We come as his own. We do not come as an alien, a stranger, or a random person, right? We come with the rights and privileges. We come with the connections and the commitments of the family. We know the Father who invites us to come and speak. The Father is involved in hearing and receiving our prayer, not... As the words of the Heidelberg Catechism put it so well, not simply as a just judge, but as a gracious father. As a gracious father. What of the son? Verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How is it that I come to God as a child? To a gracious father. Well, I come with Christ. I don't come alone. I come yoked or connected to him. I come by faith united to Jesus Christ so that I'm I'm welcome. I'm brought into the very life of the Trinity. I'm not a fourth member, but I am there arm in arm linked together with Jesus. He walks me in, you might say, to the family conversation. And because I'm connected to Jesus, because he is my representative, because he's my redeemer, because he is my very life, I also am not just a child, but notice the word, an heir. God is not just a gracious father, God is a generous father who wants not just survival, but wants blessing. He wants to bestow riches on you. He doesn't want prayer to be a mechanism for you just making it and eking by. But he wants you to know that you're an heir. Now again, heir and blessing are language which we as modern Westerners in a super rich, incredibly consumer age need to have really challenged and examined. This does not mean that I will have blitz and bling and and, and just shiny things all the time. But it means something far more profound. Those are pathetic examples of what God wants for me. 
And so we see here that the Son comes in yoked together with us, arm in arm, bringing us into this conversation. When I pray, I pray with Jesus. He is my intercessor. He lives forevermore, according to Hebrews 7, to plead my case. When I wrote a letter yesterday to a a student of mine whose family member just died tragically the day before, I'm searching for all sorts of words. The only sentence I know for sure that I have to offer in that letter is, I know that Jesus is praying for you. I'm trying to eke out, I'm feeling your pain and I'm bearing your concerns and so we search for ways to offer our own comfort. The one thing I know that he really needs is to know Jesus prays for him. That's far more interesting. So we see here, when I pray, I'm not the most interesting talker. Jesus is there and I am a joint heir with him, a fellow heir alongside him with Christ. What about the Spirit, third? Verse 16, just before. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Your prayers, perhaps like mine, aren't always that good. Not just that we don't come like deserving the result, but sometimes I don't even know what to ask for. Perhaps others know this feeling, right? I can start to name the pain and the trouble and the difficulty and the overwhelmedness, but the way out does not seem obvious. And my prayer is not just a hope that what I can name will happen, but a plea that some kind of liberation and redemption would be offered, one that I can't even seem to imagine in the moment of crisis. The Spirit bears witness. The Spirit bears witness that I'm not an idiot. The Spirit bears witness uh, that the effectiveness of this exchange is not premised on my knowing what I need, on my own diagnosis and prescription. The Spirit bears witness that my inability to pray steadfastly and wisely, that doesn't tank the exercise. The Spirit bears witness that, that I am an heir, that I am united with Christ who is wise and knows the plans God has for me. Later in the chapter, the Spirit will be able to take voiceless utterances and groanings and give clarity of them to God, we find out. Just 12 verses later. How remarkable is that? When, when I'm in the car praying to God that I would not respond unlovingly to my nagging child behind me, or when I'm waiting for the result of a medical test and I feel a little guilty that all I'm asking for is a more comfortable, healthy, easier life. But frankly, right now, I really want a healthier life. And I wonder if that's something I should or shouldn't ask for. And I I, I doubt within. The Spirit is there. The Spirit is there to take, to perfect, to sanctify, to attest my prayers before God. And so, friends, this passage tells you that though you can't see them, The whole Godhead is involved. When you pray, when you do something as mundane as get on your knees or as sit in your car seat or as sit beside a spouse or a roommate or a friend or a fellow congregant and you turn to God in prayer, the people you see aren't the most interesting characters in the room. And the feeble words we offer aren't the final word 
that determines the situation. That the Father is already there welcoming you in. And the Son whom He sent to redeem you has linked arms with you and taken up your cause and identified with you in the most profound way so that you share His life and His place in the family. Not just as an occupant, but an heir. And that the Father's given you His very Spirit so that your weakness and frailty, your cloudiness and overwhelmedness doesn't stop and stymie the whole thing. But so that God works that transforming, sanctifying, plotting, persevering work of taking our weakness and demonstrating His strength. You can look along the Trinity and see how the kind of struggles and experiences of the everyday are places where God is present. God is present in ways we might not stop to think about, we may not immediately observe, but they're no less true for our being ignorant of them. And one of the things I want to encourage you the rest of the month is as you consider some specific attributes of God, His covenant making, His holiness, His love, His justice, as you approach each of those, approach expectantly, repentantly, that there will be assumptions you bring to the table about what power or faithfulness or goodness means. And that God's word is going to help recalibrate and reframe. It's going to reshape how you pray and relate to that God. And that's okay. You're not alone in that. God has a good plan. He, he gives you a spirit to help reshape, to reform, to renew the way in which you lean in in dependence and prayer, in humility and in faith. And uh, as we call it a night, we need to call it a night. I know kids need to be picked up. I'd like to leave you with a blessing if I could. Um, not a prayer, but a, a benediction as it were. So, may a dying Savior's love, a risen Savior's power, ascending Savior's blessing, and returning Savior's glory be the joy and comfort of your hearts this night and forever. Go in God's peace.